And away we go. Okay. We'll begin with the word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this great book of Isaiah, which contains so many precious promises of the Messiah who would come and the ability that you have through your prophets to predict in such precise detail all of the events and all of the people and places that populate history. We thank you for these things. We ask that you would help us to truly understand them and to glorify you because of what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I suppose I better put in slideshow mode here. Here we go. Isaiah, this is part one of Isaiah. <coughs> and the, the subtitle I've given is just Jesus Christ the Messiah, because it's very evident that Christ is the Messiah. He's very prominent in this book. Incidentally, uh, if you looked at the announcements or listened to the announcements this week, you'll see that we're departing a little bit from the ordinary schedule. So we'll have class this week. We won't have it next week or the following week, but we will have class on the 30th of October. So just a reminder of that so you don't show up here next week. But we do have class on that fifth Wednesday of the month, which we don't normally do. But since I'm going to be out of town for two weeks, we'll do it that way. The first verse of the book tells us that it was written by the prophet Isaiah. The well-to-do son of Amos, a claim reinforced throughout the book, and that's significant because we'll talk next time about this idea that many liberal scholars have that there were two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs or who knows how many Isaiahs. Uh, his poetic and eloquent writing style reveals that he was well-educated he was well acquainted with the royal court of Judah. Isaiah wrote his book between 739 and 700 BC during the reigns of four kings of Judah, Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Isaiah is known as the Shakespeare of the prophets because his, uh, his style is, is so uh, refined. It's a high literary quality. Uh, his ministry to Israel and Judah lasted about 50 years. The New Testament quotes him more than any other prophet. The book offers both some of the, some of the clearest prophecies about the Messiah and a fascinating parallel with the narrative of the whole Bible. I think this is kind of interesting. Just as the Bible, as we have it today, has 66 books, there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. The Bible is split into two testaments. The Old Testament can, contains 39 books and the New Testament 27. Well, Isaiah contains a similar thematic division. Its first 39 chapters focus on God's condemn, condemnation 
And the last 27 emphasize God's consolation. So I think that's really interesting that the, the book of Isaiah is just kind of a, a miniature Bible. So when we, as we look at the itinerary, the, the outline of the book of, of Isaiah, the, those first 39 chapters, as I mentioned, are prophecies of condemnation primarily. So in that section of prophecies of condemnation, we have a denunciation of Judah. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, the, the, the events that he's involved in take place in Jerusalem. So it's, it's definitely in Judah. Then the, the next thir uh, chapters 13 through 23 deal with the vengeance on the enemies of Judah. And then there's an intermission, Isaiah's apocalypse, and I'll, I'll talk more about that later, about the, what is called the little apocalypse. Then there are warnings for Judah and Israel, chapters 28 through 35. Then finally, an assault on Syria in chapters 36 through 39. So that's the first part of the book. And the latter part of the book, chapters 40 through 66, which we'll deal with next time. Um, have to do with prophecies of consolation. Chapters 40 through 48, Israel's salvation. Chapters 49 through 57, Israel's savior. And uh, chapters 58 through 66, Israel's splendor. When Israel is, is restored in, during the millennial kingdom. I mentioned before that new, the New Testament quotes Isaiah more than any other prophet. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 23 different times. Jesus began his own ministry in Nazareth by reading a passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Isaiah is called the Messianic prophet because of his emphasis on God's anointed one. He spoke of the virgin birth of the Messiah in chapter 7, he prophesied both Christ's birth and his coming kingdom in chapter 9. He alluded to uh, his uh, atoning work on the cross in 53, the famous passage about the suffering servant. Salvation, mentioned 31 times, is a major theme in the book of Isaiah. Even Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. In Hebrew, it's Yeshayahu. Yahweh is salvation. The gospel, one of the, one of the main places we see the scarlet thread of redemption in Isaiah is in the oft-repeated word servant. Well, it sometimes refers to David and, or the nation of Israel. Most often, it describes the Messiah. In four passages known as the servant songs, we see the work and calling of God's ultimate service, servant, Jesus Christ. The messianic focus of so many of Isaiah's prophecies shows us that it was always God's plan to make the most precious and powerful sacrifices to bring his people, both Jews and Gentiles, into relationship with him. History 
Isaiah served as God's prophet from around 740 to 690 BC. His ministry hit its stride when the northern and southern kingdoms came under threat during the Assyrian crises. So that's what much of the historical aspect of the book of Isaiah deals with, this crisis with the Assyrians. When Hezekiah became king, Isaiah served as a powerful, positive influence on his leadership, along with two other prophets of the time, Hosea and Micah. So we've, we've looked at Hosea already. We'll, we'll look at Micah when we get done with Isaiah. Four kings reigned in Judah, the southern kingdom, during Isaiah's life. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You can read more about this period of Israel's history in 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 32. And then the travel tips, some things that we can learn from the book of Isaiah. Call sin what it is. Sin shouldn't be dismissed or diminished as a mistake or a product of one's environment. It shouldn't be winked at or shrugged at off. God hates sin. Remember that God is on the throne no matter who is the president or leader of a country and no matter how broken a system of politics appears to be. While Christians should be involved in politics, we should never forget in whom we place our ultimate trust. God often disciplines his people before he comforts them. The difference between the two sections of Isaiah, you know, I talked about the condemnation and consolation, and that reflects this pattern. He brings judgment and institutes consequences for sin so that he can rescue and restore. God speaks to the condition of your heart in all seasons of life, sometimes comforting you, sometimes challenging you, sometimes comforting. God knows when you need conviction and when you need consolation, and his word provides both. I mentioned that there are a lot of messianic prophecies in Isaiah, many of which are referred to in the New Testament. So here's a, a listing of some of the many messianic prophecies in Isaiah. First of all, Christ will have a virgin birth. He will grow up in a land dominated by a foreign power. He will minister in Galilee. He will be of the line of David. But his kingship will be eternal, and he will be the son of God. It won't just last a normal human lifetime. He will be anointed with the Holy Spirit. He will administer perfect justice regarding the poor and the meek. He will offer salvation to the entire world. He will have a forerunner. And of course, as we read the New Testament, we find out who that forerunner is. He will be the great anointed servant of Yahweh. His ministry will be gentle. So when, after Christ's first coming, while he was 
ministering on this earth, his ministry was gentle. Of course, he won't be so gentle when he returns the second time. He will be the fulfillment of God's covenant. He will be a light to the Gentiles. He would be disfigured by the abuses he suffered prior to crucifixion. He will bear all our diseases. He will provide an atonement for sin. He will be buried in a rich man's tomb. The Father will prolong his days by resurrecting him from the dead. That's in that, those, uh, all of these uh, prophecies that you see listed here are in that section that we'll be looking at next time, the suffering servant. Okay, so let's look at some of these prophecies now in detail. Uh, this is from chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. Also in chapter 7, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And I'll explain some of that more to you in just a little bit. It may seem kind of, a, kind of obscure right now, but I'll, I'll explain that to you. In chapter 9, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And of course, in the New Testament, we see that Galilee was the focus of Christ's early ministry. Of, also in chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Christ's ministry was not completed, it was not finished when he was here on earth. There is much more to come when he sets up his millennial kingdom on this earth. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's in chapter 11. Also in chapter 11. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Once again, that didn't happen in Christ's first coming. 
but it will happen in his second coming. And skipping up to chapter 24, from the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. And the reason I think that is significant is because it's talking about how the whole earth will respond to the gospel, not just Israel. We're going to have people from all corners of the earth praising God. And this one is familiar to us from the New Testament. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And that was, of course, John the Baptist. In chapter 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the, in the street. So that's referring to Christ's first coming, his ministry on earth. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So Jesus Christ is coming, comes as the embodiment of the covenant that God has made. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the reserve of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So once again, we see the incredible scope of the salvation that is brought through Christ. It isn't limited to, to Israel. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And that is talking, of course, about the horrible torture that Christ endured prior to his crucifixion, predicted centuries in advance. This is part of that Suffering servant passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So if you had witnessed Christ at the time of the crucifixion, you would have thought, like the religious leaders of the day, that, well, we finally put a stop to that. We finally put an end to him. Little did they realize that by what they were doing, they were actually fulfilling God's plan. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So Christ is able to heal our physical ailments, our mental and emotional ailments, but most importantly, our spiritual ailments. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. 
although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So even that detail about how he would be placed in a rich man's tomb was prophesied centuries in advance. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so when it talks about his days will be prolonged, we prolonged much longer than a normal human lifetime. They will be eternally prolonged. So another way that we can look into all of these prophecies is how so many details of the life of Christ were, are portrayed in Isaiah. So we, ha we saw prophecies about his birth, that... Um, He's Emmanuel, God with us. And then we read about how a child, a son is born in chapter 9. Um, we learned about his family, which family he's to come from. We learn about his anointing with the Holy Spirit. We learn about his character, about how he's going to judge the nations. We learn about the simplicity of his life when he was here on earth the first time. And of course, we also learn about his gentleness. We learn about his death. There's that suffering servant passage again, which we'll deal with more extensively next time. Uh, his resurrection was predicted, was prophesied. His glorious reign in the future millennial kingdom is prophesied many times throughout the book of Isaiah. This is just some outstanding passages in chapter 11 and also in chapter 32. So we'll look at some of the passages that I didn't consider before. Uh, in chapter 9 it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So we are told that the Messiah would come as a child, as an infant. He wasn't going to just appear on the scene full grown like, like Adam did, the first Adam. But he was predicted to come as a child. And then we learn what, what family he was to come from. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So he was to come from that line of Jesse and David that's the origin of, of Christ physically, as a physical human being. And it talks about the stump of Jesse. It appeared that that uh, that line of David had been cut off, that it had ceased, but he came forth as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 
So we read verse 4 before about how he's going to judge the poor and the meek. But here we see in, in verse 3, uh, just prior to that, that uh, we, we see the, the basis upon which he's judging. He's not, he's not judging by superficial appearances, superficial standards. He's judging by the word of God. So we see his character. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. So in Christ's first coming, in his ministry here on earth, he was not flashy, he was not flamboyant. He was a meek and mild servant of God. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. And of course that part of the prophecy will not be fulfilled until Christ returns and establishes his millennial kingdom. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And that, that, that imagery that you see there, he will swallow up death. Uh, that's more significant than you might imagine, because in both the Bible and in, in ancient paganism in, in the Near East, death was thought of as something that swallowed up its victims. It swallowed them up. It ate them. It swallowed them up. But here, God is the one who's going to swallow up death. He's going to swallow the swallower. So that, that imagery is, is very significant. And then we see this remarkable statement. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So not only is Israel going to be restored, but even the animal world will be changed when Christ returns in his second coming. And that is portrayed beautifully in the, in the book of Isaiah. And then continuing, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So not only will Israel benefit from Christ's glorious rule, but the entire earth will share in these blessings. Um, well, in that day, the root of Jesse, and we know that refers to, of course, refers to Christ, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. So God is going to gather his people from the far corners of the earth. And one of the really remarkable things about Isaiah is that he predicts a time when Israel and Egypt and Assyria will all come together and be at peace and harmony. Throughout much of of ancient history, these various nations were at war with one another. They were struggling against each other. But, But the book of Isaiah predicts a time, prophesies a time when they will all come together to praise the Lord. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass harass Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is just one of the tribes, one of the northern tribes, but Ephraim is the most prominent tribe, so it's it's used as a metonymy, as speaking of all, all of the ten tribes together when it refers to Ephraim. Ephraim is just some of the most prominent leading tribes. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines to the west, in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. So the people of God are going to miraculously, supernaturally return to Israel. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Next, I want to talk about when Isaiah first received his commission from God. The things that he experienced and how, in a way, they parallel our experience, the experience of all of those who who come to God. First of all, there was conviction. Woe is me. I am undone. That was the cry brought by the sense of sinfulness before God's holiness. So that is the the first step in coming to God, turning to God, when we realize that he is holy and we are sinful. Confession, a man of unclean lips, a broken and a contrite heart is precious to the Lord. Then cleansing, your sin purged. After confession, a flying seraph, that's an an order of angels, an order of angelic beings, cleanses his lips with a hot coal from off the altar. And there's great symbolism in that because the altar is where sacrifices occurred and Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. 
so it is through him that we receive our cleansing. Once we have been cleansed and restored to God, then we're able to go out and serve him. So then there's consecration. Here I am. Send me. So Isaiah went from, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. But once God had cleansed him, then he could faithfully serve God. And so then he received God's commission. Go, God's command. So that was Isaiah's experiences in chapter 6. Now, this um, statement in chapter 7, verse 14, is very famous. We tend to read it every year at Christmas time. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the 1950s, 1952 to be exact, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible came out, and many people were horrified to, to see this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What do they mean, young woman? Everybody knows it's a virgin. A young woman could either be, might be a virgin, might not be a virgin. Well, I don't, I don't think this is as problematic as, as many people thought at that time, because remember now, there's a near-term fulfillment and a far-term fulfillment. And with the far-term fulfillment, which was fulfilled in the Virgin Mary, the mother of Christ, mother of Jesus, she was a virgin at the time. But you see, Isaiah had to use a word that covered both the near-term fulfillment and the far-term fulfillment. So he could have used a word which specifically referred to a virgin, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because there's a far-term fulfillment, which was a virgin, and there's also a near-term fulfillment. Now, we as Christians, we, we tend to think only in terms of the far-term fulfillment. We don't think much about the, the near-term fulfillment. So I'll explain some of that to you and, and give you the context in which this prophecy was issued. In Isaiah's time, the dominant superpower in the Near East was Assyria. As Assyria expanded to the west, Israel and Syria formed an alliance to oppose Assyria. Now, I hope you understand now that Syria and Assyria are two different nations. Assyria and Assyria, they're not the same. So Syria, along with Israel, was opposing Assyria. They, they formed an alliance hoping that they could stop the spread of Assyria. Israel and Syria wanted Judah, the, the southern kingdom, which at that time was ruled by King Ahaz, to join them in their alliance against Assyria. But Judah, under King Ahaz, refused to join the alliance of Israel and Syria against Assyria. So Israel, the northern kingdom, 
in Syria, with his capital in Damascus, it's, it borders on Israel. Those two were opposing Assyria, and they wanted Judah to join with them, but Judah wouldn't do it. And that is good because uh, Israel, or, excuse me, Isaiah had advised Ahaz not to do it, not to join this coalition against Assyria. But when Ahaz did this, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria attacked Judah. They came against Judah. Now, how dare you not join with us in opposing Assyria? We need you. If you're not going to join us, we're going to fight you. So Isaiah gave this Emmanuel prophecy to Ahaz to assure him that his enemies, Israel and Syria, need not be feared. They would be destroyed. So Isaiah assured Ahaz that his enemies, Israel and Syria, would be destroyed. He didn't need to be worried about them. So Isaiah gave Ahaz a sign that a son would be born. And before this son was grown, Judah's enemies, Israel and Syria, would be destroyed. So the prophecies that Isaiah gave to Ahaz in chapter 7 and chapter 9 tell us that before this, this son, this infant, before he could even say, before he even knew how to say mama and dada, that these enemies of Israel, of Judah, would be destroyed. So that was the, the sign that was given to Ahaz, and that was the near-term fulfillment. And so we usually think, as Christians, we usually think in terms of that long-term fulfillment in, in the Virgin Mary and the birth of Christ, but the people of Isaiah's time weren't thinking in those terms. They wanted immediate relief. They, wanted, they were looking for a, a near-term fulfillment in their lifetime. So, who was this promised child, this promised son? Well, there are uh, several different ideas about who this could be in, in the near-term fulfillment. One, one idea is that it's a collective name for all children born from Judahite women who were pregnant at the time of the prophecy. So that's one idea, is that it doesn't refer to just one person, it refers to many children. Another idea is that the child was the child of a queen or a princess in the royal family in the royal family of Judah. And a third idea is that this son that is referred to, the near-term fulfillment anyway, of this is Mahar Shalal Heshbaz, whose birth is recorded in chapter 8. So in chapter 7, there was, this prophecy was issued about the Emmanuel, God with us. And then in chapter, chapter, chapter 8, we learn about the birth of this Mahar Shalal Heshbaz. And incidentally, if we're ever playing a game of Bible trivia and you get the question, what is the longest name in the Bible? This is it, Mahar Shalal Heshbaz. The idea that Emmanuel is a collective name referring to many children of Judah doesn't have much support. The singular forms used in chapter 7 favor an individual reference. 
So all of, all of the nouns and the pronouns are singular. So it, it doesn't seem very likely that, that it's a collective name referring to all of the, the children of Judah. It is possible that the young lady addressed by Isaiah may have been a member of the royal family. She may have even been a virgin at the time the prophecy was issued. Now she, of course, wasn't a virgin at the time that the child was conceived and born, but she could have been from the royal family and she could have been a virgin at the time. But the most likely option is that Emmanuel and Maher Shalal Heshbaz, whose birth is recorded in chapter 8, were one and the same. This child was the son of Isaiah and the prophetess, she's called, the wife of Isaiah. The birth account in chapter 8, verse 3, could easily be interpreted as the fulfillment of the prophecy in 7.14. So when, when we read about this, about the birth of Maher Shalal Heshbaz, in chapter 8, um, Isaiah was instructed to write down his name on a scroll, and he was instructed to have witnesses, two witnesses for, of this birth. So the presence of a formal record and witnesses suggests a sign function for the child. So that seems to indicate that this, the birth of this child was seen as a sign. As in 714 through 16, the removal of Judah's enemies would take place before the child reached a specified age. Before this child really began growing up, Judah's enemies would be defeated. Unfortunately, though, Ahaz did not trust in the Lord, as he should have done. He relied on the power of Assyria. So he, he refused to join this coalition of Israel and Syria against Assyria. Instead, he tried to curry favor with Assyria. But Assyria's friendship was not free. <laughs> it came at a price. Judah had to pay heavy tribute to Assyria. So Assyria's policy was, yeah, we'll be your friend, but you need to, you need to pay up. When the son of Ahaz, the next king, King Hezekiah, decided that he could no longer pay this tribute, Assyria came against Judah to collect their money. So everything was fine as long as Judah was paying their tribute, but when they quit paying, then Israel took action, or excuse me, Assyria took action. Both uh, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, where we read about this Emmanuel, this son, who was to come. Uh, they both speak of an Assyrian invasion of Judah following the defeat of the Syrian-Israelite alliance. So Assyria defeated Syria and Israel. And, of course, this is where we find the, the northern kingdom of Israel being taken into captivity by Assyria. The direct address to Emmanuel at the end of 8.8 of would make sense if his birth had been recorded in the previous verses. So that's a good reason to believe that this Emmanuel, the near-term fulfillment anyway, was this Maher Shalal Heshbaz.
So, but when Assyria came against Judah and destruction seemed certain, God miraculously intervened and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So things were looking pretty bleak for Judah when they were attacked by the powerful Assyrian army. One, one city after another in Judah fell, but when they came to Jerusalem, God miraculously intervened, supernaturally intervened. The Assyrian king and the remainder of his army broke off the attack on Jerusalem and returned to Assyria. And you, you can read about that in the book of Isaiah and also you can read about it in 2 Kings 18 through 19. It's interesting to read the propaganda version that exists in the Assyrian records. They, they don't mention that they were miraculously defeated by God. But things didn't uh, go so well for this Assyrian king because after he left, he went back to Assyria, to Nineveh, the capital. And he was assassinated. We learn about this both from the Bible and also from secular history. Apparently what happened was he appointed one of his younger sons to be the king after him. And of course that didn't sit well with the older son who felt that he should be the king. So it led to an assassination. And Hezekiah made a strategic blunder here when he showed the riches of Judah to a Babylonian envoy. Now at this time, Babylon was not a major player on the world stage. But when they did become a superpower, they destroyed Judah. So they remembered those riches that they saw in the temple and, and the king's palace. And they, when they eventually became a superpower, they attacked Judah and took them into captivity. And Isaiah prophesied all of this long before Babylon was a superpower. And beyond that, he even prophesied that the, the Persians would destroy Babylon. So he, he, he um, prophesied these things. And he even mentioned uh, Cyrus, the Persian, uh, by name. 150 years before he even came on the scene. That's one of the reasons why liberal scholars want to claim that, well, he couldn't have really predicted these things long before they happened. There had to be two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs. In addition to being a reminder of God's presence in the immediate crisis faced by Ahaz and Judah, Emmanuel was a guarantee of the nation's future greatness in fulfillment of God's covenant promises. So that's the far-term fulfillment that we're familiar with in Jesus Christ. Eventually, God would deliver his people from the hostile nations through another child, an ideal Davidic ruler who would embody God's presence in a special way. That was Jesus the Christ. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention, this is, you're, you're familiar with this passage about in, in chapter 9 about for unto us a child is born, a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So how many titles are there here? Should we see this, this first title? Are there, are there four or five? Should we see this first title as Wonderful, comma, Counselor, or should we see it as Wonderful Counselor? <laughs> so that's a, a question that arises. Traditionally, Wonderful and Counselor have been taken separately, yielding a total of five titles. So we have Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But are there really five or are there four? Uh, however, the pattern of the, the pattern I see that's duplicated. The pattern of the second, third, and fourth titles, each of which combines two elements, suggests the first title is also a compound, wonderful counselor. So, so we have wonderful counselor, two items, mighty God, two items, everlasting father, two items, and Prince of Peace, two items. So I think we should see Wonderful Counselor as one title, not two. Now, the, the little apocalypse. When I was giving you the, the itinerary, the outline of the book, I mentioned this section called the little apocalypse. So I need to explain what that is all about. Chapters 24 through 27 depict God's culminating worldwide judgment. So he's not just dealing with Israel and Judah and the nations of the Near East, the ancient Near East. He's eventually breaking out in worldwide judgment and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. <coughs> These chapters pick up the theme of worldwide judgment introduced in chapter 13. That's where it first talks about worldwide judgment. And then this section develops it further. Scholars sometimes label chapters uh, 24 through 27 as the little apocalypse. For the literary style and thematic emphases of, the, of these chapters resemble the book of Revelation, which is, of course, also known as the apocalypse. So this section of Isaiah is, is sometimes called the little apocalypse. Chapters 24 through 27. The little apocalypse begins with a description of God's devastating worldwide judgment. Once again, it's a, it's a worldwide judgment that's coming, not just a judgment of the nation of the ancient Near East. <coughs> so God plays no favorites. The judgment touches everyone, including the most prominent and the most lowly in society. That's uh, in chapter four, 24, verses 1 to 20. God's day of judgment culminates in the defeat of the cosmic alliance arrayed against him. So he, he, Jesus is not only opposed by the nations, he's opposed by spiritual forces. These forces are identified as the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. So he's dealing with spiritual forces, and he's dealing with physical forces. And we see that also in the Apocalypse, in Revelation. At this point, God's suffering people address the Lord. Having heard Isaiah describe the nation's glorious future, 
they declare their allegiance to the Lord and anticipate the prophet's vision becoming a reality. They anxiously await the coming of God's judgment because it alone will convince sinners of his just, justice and majesty. When I, this is chapter 26, verses 8 through 18. When I read this passage, I'm reminded of, of the incident in the book of Revelation in, in, when the fifth seal is opened and the, the martyrs that have been beheaded uh, for serving Christ, they cry out, they call, call upon God. They say, how long, O Lord? Well, a similar thing is happening here where the, God's people are wondering, well, how, how long is it going to be until we are vindicated? The Lord responds to Israel's prayer with an encouraging word of hope. He announces that Israel's dead will rise from the grave. It talks about a re- actually talks about a resurrection. Following the Lord's victory over his enemies, he abundantly blesses his people. And that's it for this section of Isaiah. To give you a little preview of what we're going to discuss next time on the 30th, remember, the 30th of October, not next week, not the week after, but <laughs> 30th of October. Um, I'm going to deal with this idea that the, the book of Isaiah wasn't written just by Isaiah. There were two or three, you know, there was Deutero-Isaiah and Trito-Isaiah. Um, once again, mainly because the, the liberals can't bring themselves to believe that that Isaiah could actually issue a prophecy that would predict events, detailed events, centuries before they happen. And then I will also deal extensively with that passage about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, because that is very, very important, very significant. So that's the first part of Isaiah, the the Old Testament, so to speak, of Isaiah, chapters uh, 1 through 39. Father in heaven, we do thank you for all of the information that you have given us in the book of Isaiah. And we see the, the intricacy that you could construct prophecies so that they would cover both a near-term fulfillment and a far-term fulfillment. We are so thankful that you have worked with Israel and worked with us work with the Gentiles to bring us into your kingdom. We thank you for the great salvation that you have given to us, a salvation that is pictured in the book of Isaiah. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.